0: Part two, Chapter twenty one of the Story of the Barbary Corsairs by Stanley Lane Poole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by james k White. Chapter twenty one, The Battle of Algiers, eighteen sixteen. Nelson was in the Mediterranean at the beginning of the nineteenth century, as everyone knows, but the suppression of the Barbary Corsairs formed no part of his instructions. Twice, indeed, he sent a ship of war to inquire into the complaints of the consuls, but without effect. And then, on the glorious 21st of October, 1805, the great admiral fell in the supreme hour of victory. Collingwood made no attempt to deal with the Algerine difficulty, beyond sending a civilian agent and a present of a watch, which the day consigned to his cook. The British victories appear to have impressed the pirate's mind, but slightly, and in eighteen twelve we find mr Accourt, lord heightsbury condescending to negotiate terms between the corsairs and our allies the portuguese by which the latter obtained immunity from molestation and the release of their countrymen by the payment altogether of over a million dollars and an annual tribute of twenty four thousand dollars to the united states of america belongs the honour of having first set an example of spirited resistance to the pretensions of the corsairs so long as they had been at war with great britain the states were unable to protect their commerce in the mediterranean and they were forced to fall in with the prevailing custom and make peace with the robbers on the basis of a bribe over a million of spanish dollars and a large annual tribute in money and naval stores but as soon as the treaty of ghent set them free in eighteen fifteen they sent a squadron to algiers bearing mr william shaler as american consul and captains bainbridge and stephen decatur as his assessors in the impending negotiations the result was that after only two days a treaty was concluded on june 30, eighteen fifteen by which all money payment was abolished all captives and property were restored and the united states were placed on the footing of the most favoured nation the arguments of the americans appear to have been more eloquent than british broadsides shamed by this unexpected success the english government at length sent lord exmouth formerly sir edward to obtain favourable terms for some of the minor mediterranean powers and to place the ionian islands as british dependencies on the same footing as england yet he was evidently not authorized to proceed to extreme measures or demand unconditional surrender of existing pretensions he arranged terms for naples which still included tribute and presents sardinia escaped for a sum down the ionians were admitted on the english footing then lord exmouth went on to tunis and tripoli and obtained from the two bays the promise of the total abolition of christian slavery his proceedings at tunis were marked by much firmness and rewarded with commensurate success he arrived on the twelfth of april eighteen sixteen shortly after a tunisian corsair in devastating one of the sardinian islands had roused the indignation of europe lord exmouth demanded nothing less than the total abolition of christian slavery it happened that at this very time caroline princess of wales was enjoying the splendid hospitality of Mahmoud Bey in his city palace. Neither party seemed inclined to yield, and matters assumed a very threatening aspect. The mediation of the royal guest was invoked in vain. Lord Exmouth was inexorable. The princess sent the greater part of her baggage to the Goletta. The British merchants hastened to embark on board the vessels of the squadron. The men of war were prepared for action, and the Bey did his best to collect all available reinforcements. The excitement in Tunis was immense, and a Pacific solution was considered almost impossible. On the 16th, Lord Exmouth, accompanied by Mr. Consul General Oglander and his staff, proceeded to the Bardo Palace. The flagstaff of the British agency was previously lowered to indicate a resolution to resort to an appeal to arms in case of failure and the princess of wales expected every hour to be arrested as a hostage the antecedents of the bey were not precisely calculated to assuage her alarm but Mahmoud sent one of his officers to assure her that come what might he should never dream of violating the muslim laws of hospitality while the messenger was still with her lord exmouth entered the room and announced the satisfactory termination of his mission on the following morning the bey signed a treaty whereby in the name of the regency he abolished christian slavery throughout his dominions among the reasons which induced the bey to yield to the pressure used by lord Exmouth was the detention of the sultan's envoy bearing the imperial firman and robe of investiture at syracuse the neapolitan government would not allow him to depart until the news of the successful result of the british mission had arrived and mahmoud "'felt it impossible to forego the official recognition of his suzerain. "'The wife of George the Fourth was extremely angry "'at being interrupted in a delightful course of entertainments "'and picnics among the ruins of Carthage and the orange groves, "'whither she repaired in the bay's coach and six, "'escorted by sixty Memluks. "'The Tunisians were, of course, indignant at the bay's surrender. "'Nor did piracy cease on account of the treaty.' Holland indeed repudiated the blackmail in eighteen nineteen but Sweden still paid a species of tribute in the form of one hundred and twenty-five cannons in eighteen twenty seven having gained his point at Tunis and Tripoli a most unexpected triumph lord Exmouth came back to Algiers and endeavoured to negotiate the same concessions there coolly taking up his position within short range of the batteries his proposals were indignantly rejected and he was personally insulted two of his officers were dragged from their horses by the mob and marched through the streets with their hands tied behind their backs the consul mr macdonald was put under guard and his wife and other ladies of his family were ignominiously driven into the town from the country-house lord exmouth had no instructions for such an emergency he arranged that ambassadors should be sent from algiers to london and constantinople to discuss his proposal and then regretfully sailed for England. He had hardly returned when news arrived of extensive massacres of Italians living under British protection at Bona and Oran by order of the day. An order actually issued while the British admiral was at Algiers. Lord Exmouth was immediately instructed to finish his work on the twenty fifth of July in the same year his flagship, the Queen Charlotte, one hundred eight led a squadron of eighteen men of war of from ten to one hundred and four guns and including three seventy fours out of portsmouth harbour at gibraltar the dutch admiral baron van begged to be allowed to join in the attack with six vessels chiefly thirty sixes and when the time came he fought his ships admirably on the twenty seventh of august they arrived in the roads of algiers the prometheus had been sent ahead to bring off the consul mcdonnell and his family captain dashwood succeeded in bringing mrs and miss mcdonnell on board but a second boat was less fortunate the consul's baby took the opportunity of crying just as it was being carried in a basket past the sentinel by the ship's surgeon who believed he had quieted it the whole party was taken before the day who however released all but the boat's crew AND AS A SOLITARY INSTANCE OF HIS HUMANITY SENT THE BABY ON BOARD. THE CONSUL GENERAL HIMSELF REMAINED A PRISONER. NO REPLY BEING VOUCHSAFED TO HIS FLAG OF TRUCE, LORD Exmouth BORE UP TO THE ATTACK, AND THE QUEEN CHARLOTTE DROPPED ANCHOR IN THE ENTRANCE OF THE MOLE, SOME FIFTY YARDS OFF, AND WAS LASHED TO A MAST WHICH WAS MADE FAST TO THE SHORE. A SHOT FROM THE MOLE, INSTANTLY ANSWERED FROM THE FLAGSHIP, OPENED THE BATTLE then commenced a fire wrote the admiral as animated and well supported as i believe was ever witnessed from a quarter before three till nine without intermission and which did not cease altogether till half-past eleven p m the ships immediately following me were admirably and coolly taking up their stations with a precision even beyond my most sanguine hope and never did the british flag receive on any occasion more zealous and honourable support the battle was fairly at issue between a handful of britons in the noble cause of christianity and a horde of fanatics assembled round their city and enclosed within its fortifications to obey the dictates of their despot the cause of god and humanity prevailed and so devoted was every creature in the fleet that even british women served at the same guns with their husbands and during a contest of many hours never shrank from danger but animated all around them some of the men of war especially the impregnable rear admiral milna were hard beset but about ten o'clock at night the main batteries were silenced and in a state of ruin and all the ships in the port with the exception of the outer frigate which had been boarded were in flames which extended rapidly over the whole arsenal storehouses and gunboats "'exhibiting a spectacle of awful grandeur and interest no pen can describe. "'At one o'clock, everything in the Marine seemed on fire. Two ships wrapped in flames drifted out of the port. "'Heavy thunder, lightning, and rain increased the lurid effect of the scene. "'Next morning,' says Mr. Shaler, "'the combined fleets are at anchor in the bay, apparently little damaged. "'Every part of the town appeared to have suffered.' The marine batteries are in ruins and may be occupied without any effort. Lord Exmouth holds the fate of Algiers in his hands. Instead, however, of demolishing the last vestige of the fortifications and exacting pledges for future good behaviour, the Admiral concluded a treaty by which prisoners of war in future should be exchanged and not enslaved, and the whole of the slaves in Algiers to the number of sixteen hundred forty-two. Chiefly Italian, only eighteen English, were at once set at liberty, and the day was made to refund the money, amounting to nearly four hundred dollars, which he had that year extorted from the Italian states. Finally, he was made to publicly apologize to the unfortunate MacDonald, who had been confined during the siege half naked in the cell for condemned murderers, loaded with chains, fastened to the wall, exposed to the heavy rain and momentarily expecting his doom he was now reinstated and publicly thanked by the admiral it was indeed satisfactory to have at last administered some salutary discipline to the insolent robbers of algiers but it had been well if the lesson had been final their fleet was certainly gone they had but two vessels left their fortifications were severely damaged but these were soon repaired no doubt It was no small advantage to have demonstrated that their batteries could be turned and silenced but it would have been better to have taken care that they should never mount another gun even the moral effect of the victory seems to have been short-lived for when in eighteen nineteen in pursuance of certain resolutions expressed at the congress of aix la chapelle eighteen eighteen the french and english admirals delivered identical notes to the new day that potentate replied after his manner by throwing up earthworks as a matter of fact the same course of insolence and violence continued after the battle of algiers as before free european girls were carried off by the day the british consulate was forced to open and even the women's rooms searched mr Macdonald was still victimized and the diplomacy and the little fancy firing of sir harry neal in eighteen twenty four Failed to produce the least effect. Mr. Macdonald had to be recalled, and the day, as usual, had his own way. Nothing but downright conquest could stop the plague, and that final measure was reserved for another nation than the English. End of part two, chapter twenty-one. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.